hey all my friends, welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 241, and today's podcast is a little bit different. Um, it's uh, I, I, I'm going to be less polished maybe in some ways. Um, it's a little bit more of a mental meandering through the uh, hallways of my uh, brain while I'm out on a tractor mowing my lawn thinking about things uh, and trying to process out. Uh, how to effectively be a missionary in a divided world, right? And the world is certainly divided over a lot of things right now. It's like every time I go check out the news in the morning, I see a different divide, a different thing. And and one of the things I, I realize in the context of that is that I am all too human. And I can get pulled into the divide and I can get pulled into it in such a way that I think the the proper outcome of a divide is to pick my side and plant hard on my side. And then from that, see the other side is the villain, the problem, the the thing to be addressed, thwarted, stopped, destroyed, whatever. And, And then I'm suddenly not really thinking in terms of, wait, I'm deposited into a world to make a difference for Jesus. And Jesus died for everyone. Jesus seeks to reach everyone, all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And I need to have a posture that loves all kinds of people regardless of my temptation to want to pick a side, stay there and fight the other side. Like that's what being an everyday missionary is all about. And depending on the topic, that can be really problematic. And I find even in light of that, that sometimes there is this temptation to double down on a side because that's the only way you can beat the other side. Like, don't give them any credit. Don't give them an inch to work with. Don't say one of their ideas was good. Otherwise, they're going to take that and run with it, and they're going to make it sound like you think all their ideas are good. And so all the more, we're tempted to not uh, build bridges. We're tempted to not concede certain ideas or we're tempted to not go like, oh, I, I see both sides of this and it's problematic or whatever else. And so we just feel like our our calling is just nothing but certainty and conviction on one side of a topic. And therefore, we don't leave room for nuance, for humility, for uh, asking further questions, for wanting to be really certain of our positions. We just double down, dig deep, call it done, move forward, right? And so that's kind of what today's about. And and I don't even fully know how this is all going to unfold. Um, just because I think, like I said, what you're getting is is like a mind dump of thoughts that I'm trying to work through. And I'm not trying to work through it to be sensationalistic. I'm not trying to work through it to, um, you know, uh, just, you know, pick a topic that is divisive and why not talk about that? Like, that's not it. This is really like, you're getting an insight into just my own personal wrestling through things. And in the process of that, legitimately wanting to honor God, honor the kingdom, honor the gospel, honor our missionary calling. And yet also in light of that, like move forward into things that I think are are biblically rooted and based and matter to the heart of God, like all of that's in there. And so to do a podcast then on on our intersection with the Roe versus Wade stuff that's going on in the media right now and, and potentially in the court, it's it's pretty murky. And here's why I say it's pretty murky. Let me start with this. Um, I have written on uh, the Everyday Missionary uh, as far as my position being pro-life, and it was a it was a article that I wrote not trying to cite a bunch of Bible passages. I didn't cite any Bible passages in it. I tried to appeal more to helping my pro-choice friends understand why those of us in the pre uh, kind of the the um, pro-life 
category hold the ideas that we do. So it was kind of like me trying to build a bridge to helping people understand kind of what our position is. Uh, I've also spoken on the podcast historically about my position being pro-life. Uh, and so you can look those up in some of the previous stuff that I've done on this. And and in there, I've shared kind of a nuanced perspective, which is uh, in my world, I believe in trying to be as consistent as possible and so I would say that my heart is to be more consistently pro-life. It's why I kind of share the Catholic opinion uh, that I don't support uh, capital punishment I, in any format. I don't support capital punishment. Uh, that always surprises some of my evangelical friends. But I go, that's just consistent. I can't say life is sacred. And I go, but your life isn't sacred because you committed a terrible crime. If everybody bears the image of God, I would rather incarcerate. I'd rather rehabilitate. I don't think I'm a big fan of of you know, taking people's life, even as criminals. Like that's just, I go, if I'm landing someplace, I'm landing someplace. So I kind of land there. I also land in the space that says, if we're going to be pro-life, we have to be pro-life in the consistent pattern, not just making sure that abortions can't happen, but making sure these mothers, many of them statistically coming from impoverished environments, have the resources to raise their kids, to give them health care, to give them the things that are necessary for flourishing. Otherwise, you're just going to have a bunch of children born into poverty, which is then going to become your criminal base over the course of time, in which case you're going to have to incarcerate and becomes way more expensive to incarcerate than it would have to just simply provided the funds necessary to raise kids in a healthy and thriving environment, at least as much as is possible. So I believe in a lot of social network uh, that is taxpayer funded to make that possible for impoverished communities if they're going to be now having babies in those communities or even creating and you know making possible funding for easy to access birth control uh, for those communities to minimize the pregnancies, to minimize the collateral damage or kind of the downstream problems of having children in impoverished environments. And with that, the, 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 the hardship that happens in those worlds, right? So all of that is in there. Cause again, I, I can't help but think about the old Testament when it comes to like widows and orphans and those in their time of need, the poor and the needy, those were the calls of justice from God, where God would look at Israel and say, you are, are all suffering under the weight of injustice because you don't care about the least of these in your society and what happens in a pro-life context where abortion is eliminated or dramatically reduced or whatever else is that you have a higher increase in a population that's impoverished and our Christian ethic demands that we then think about our political posturing and our voting and our money uh, you know, transfer to be going in those realms because that's going to become more weighty, right? Like if, if all things go according to the way they might go, which I'll get into that in a minute, uh, you would have roughly half of the country, 25 to 26 states that would severely restrict or eliminate uh, abortion on demand in those states. And what you will have congruently from that is a lot more births in those states to people who are of lesser means. And so we can't just say, hey, I feel good about myself. I got rid of this this blight on society and, and then not take ownership of the other things that will come out of that. Like there has to be this sense of awareness about that because I think that's what it means to be pro-life. And I know there's like memes out there about people are just anti-abortion, they're not pro-life, or you're pro-birth, you're not pro-life. And and I actually think there's a lot of Christian organizations that do a really good job of trying to be there from zero to 18, right? And in fact, maybe that's the disconnect is so often in the evangelical world, we 
have programs that are meant to help some of that, but then we sort of vote against government doing that. And we say, well, government shouldn't do it. Private enterprise and churches should do that, but it's super disproportionate. So not enough Christian ministries or churches give enough resources to the poorer communities to offset what government kind of offers to poorer communities, particularly in the realm of medical needs and food needs and things like that. And so part of this is saying, hey, if, if we're really having a conviction about life, we do have to kind of own the fact that we need to buy into all the things that make life flourishing, not just simply preventing abortion, right? So I've talked about that in previous podcasts about this is what I think it means to be authentically pro-life is to take ownership of all of that and realize that, yeah, there's going to be a downstream effect to these decisions. And we want to be the first ones on the scene instead of it being like, hey, well, you were dumb enough to get knocked up when you were young and poor and that's on you. I don't think that's the heart of Jesus at all. I really don't. I think that that kind of just smacks of a certain pride of, hey, I didn't make the same mistake you did, so it's not my problem. Uh, because as we love to say in the pro-life movement, it's not the fault of the child. So in the same way, if a parent made a decision that ended up in a pregnancy that they didn't anticipate and because the laws are such that they have to have the child, don't punish the child for the decision of the parent. We need to make sure we help take care of that child, that we invest into that child, that we create the greatest possible equity for that child. And that may mean that, you know what, we have to make some hard decisions with how we vote and how we allocate our, our funds as churches, ministries, and as taxpayers, right? All of that would be in play. So I, 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 this is where my brain begins to go, where I, it, you, you, you want the whole big picture that is there, right? And so I, I bring that up in part because I think so often in the culture wars, we treat it as a little bit like what happened in the Middle East when we go to war and then within a very short amount of time, we put up a banner on an aircraft carrier that says mission accomplished. And then 20 years later, the mission's still not accomplished, right? We go, nope, we crossed a line. We planted a flag. We, you know, whatever it is now we're done. And, and I go, we'd be far from done uh, if, if everything was to go where Roe versus Wade is overturned, right? So, so part of this is we have to realize that we're going to be inviting a whole new set of responsibilities and burdens and callings that God will hold us accountable to as his people. If we have been his people and said, we want to see this overturned, he's like, great. You have a whole new set of, of jobs to fulfill now. Go and do that because if you don't do that, you're in a lot of trouble with me, which is Matthew 25. You know, I was poor. I was imprisoned. I was naked. I was hungry. Were you there for me? And if we go, nope, we just got the law overturned, but we weren't there for anybody after that then that's on us, right? So I think we need to be sober-minded in these things. And it can't just be like, hey, give yourselves a pat on the back. You got something through. You feel better that you removed a law of the land, but you didn't remove the problems of the world in the process, right? So so that's something that's been on my mind a lot. And I just kind of wanted to start off with that. Um, I think another thing that's been on my mind a little bit that I've just been kind of wrestling through, and this is going to sound a little bit weird, and and, and I hope what you can do with this podcast today, it, you may go like, Matt, I don't, I don't agree that you're, you're giving a little too much latitude in some of this. I'm just sharing what I have to process through it. So maybe, maybe what this is in some ways is just trying to share a processing journey, right? Less than like, hey, I have something I'm landing on the other side or whatever else. But this is just kind of a processing thing that I'm working through where I'm like, okay, um, you know, I, I fall into this pro-life camp. But what 
like, why do I believe life begins when it does? What are the things I'm factoring in on that? What are the the biblical ideas that we're, I'm looking at? What are the the philosophical ideas? Like, like all of that. I know for some people, they're like, no, I don't need to do any of that, right? Life just begins at conception, end of story, right? Let me share with you why I had a thought experiment in this, and I've had some other things I've tried to work through in this and, and everything else. But let me let me share with you what I kind of think is at stake, right? And both are important. So uh, if if the pro-life idea is correct and life begins at the moment a sperm enters an egg, right? At the moment of that occurrence that that is life, then anybody that has an abortion within an hour or a day or a week or a month of that moment, use the Texas law, uh, you know, six weeks and after they say, okay, that's, you know, you can't have an abortion six weeks or after, but but what what the pro-life position has been is no, even that six weeks is problematic. So if anybody has an abortion within that six weeks, what our, our moral line is saying is that that is the taking of a life and therefore from that you would be guilty of murder, right? That was That's kind of the position that we take, right? So we go, this is why it's so serious that all abortion, whether it be one second after uh, fertilization occurs or whether it be nine months, uh, it's all murder, then we're telling people that that's what they're, that's what they're guilty of in the eyes of God, according to the laws of God, is they're, they're guilty of murder. And, and murder is a pretty serious crime. But there's another serious crime, right? And the other serious crime is when you are convicted of murder or accused of murder and you didn't actually commit a murder, right? So we've heard all of those stories in, in the system where people have been on death row for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, they were accused of all these crimes, they were accused of murder, and then you find out they didn't actually murder. And when you hear that, you go, that's a grave injustice. So murder's an injustice, and being accused of murder that isn't murder is injustice. And that's what I had to process through a little bit, right? So would... Am I saying that those are on equal f- footing? Yeah, I think being accused of a murder that isn't a murder is just as serious as murder. Like they're both differently serious for different reasons, reasons, and they're they're both issues of violations of justice, just in in different planes, right? So then, with that, then as I was trying to process this through, I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be taking the position that if if an abortion happens one second after fertilization, that that is the taking of a human life and that is equal to murder. And I'm accusing people of murder one minute or one second after fertilization. I know that nobody's having an abortion one second after. I'm just, this is the thought experiment part. I, I'm trying to run that out and say, is that what I'm saying? You know, am I equating one second after or one week after or one month after with nine months or five years or 10 years or 30 years of life or whatever else? I mean, am I saying it's on that continuum? It's all exactly the same. That was what I was really trying to kind of process through in my mind, knowing that the weight of all of this is it's either the taking of a life, which is an injustice, or it's accusing people of taking lives that may not be a life, and that's an injustice. So am I certain that 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 entire spectrum is a human life? That's what I was trying to process through a little bit in my mind. Now, again, remember, I'm coming at this as somebody that's in the pro-life position. So, you know, I already have a bias, right, in that sense. So now I'm just trying to, to go back and look at my bias and go, why do I hold the bias that I do? And so then that this kind of led to this weird thought experiment, right? 
And so here's the thought experiment that I was working through a little bit. Uh, I'm going to use a couple of different hypothetical scenarios because I found when I did this, I'm like, okay, why do I come to this conclusion that I do a little bit, right? So, or why am I leaning one way or another? Or how would I handle this in the thought experiment? You got to understand, I have a degree in philosophy, so this is part of how my brain works. Some of you are just like, you're just like, nah, I don't need philosophy, man. I can just be all in, yes or no, black, white. It's, you know, it's green or it's red. I, I bless you for that. I wish I had that brain sometimes. So anyway, thought experiment. So picture a scene. It's an intersection, and at the intersection, there's a collision between two vehicles. Uh, one is a husband and a wife, and they have their six-month-old in the backseat of the car. It collides with a medical service van, uh, and in the medical service van are 30 fertilized eggs that are being transported from one facility to another because uh, it Parents looking toward in vitro fertilization, uh, you know, they they actually have the sperm and egg coupled. It creates the zygote. This, you know, it's the earliest stages of development, um, and and so they're frozen and waiting to be implanted into future mothers uh, to hopefully have children. So you have thirty of these fertilized eggs in the van. You have a car with a six-month-old in the back seat. As they collide, both vehicles are tipped onto their side. They ignite on fire, and the drivers of the vehicles both get out and say, I need your help. One driver says, can you rescue my six-month-old out of the back seat? The other says, there are 30 fertilized eggs in the van. Can you rescue those out of the van? You can only have time to rescue one or the other. Which do you rescue? Do you rescue the six-month-old or do you rescue the 30 fertilized eggs? Because from a pro-life position, I should be deeply conflicted, right? I should be like, matter of fact, I don't know if I should be conflicted. The answer should be obvious. You rescue the 30 eggs. You don't rescue the six-month-old because 30 people in one rescue attempt is far better than one person in one rescue attempt, right? So from the numerical value of the thought experiment, 30 people saved is more valuable than one person saved. But I honestly think in the thought experiment, if we were all faced with that, most of us would go after the six-month-old. We wouldn't go after the 30 fertilized eggs. And that's what troubled me, right? That, that, like, in other words, this is just my philosophical experiment. I'm working this out. I'm saying, well, well why though? What, do I inherently already have a value system in place where I go, yes, their life, but if it's 30 versus one, I go for the one that's breathing air and not the 30 that are are waiting to breathe air, right? Or waiting to even form up to something that I can recognize as a human embryo or as a human being or whatever else. And so, you know, this was just, again, in working through the thought experiment, I found myself just kind of perplexed a little bit at what I was looking at in my experiment. Like, because it should just be a given, right? I go after the 30 every time. Right, if I'm forced with one or the other. So then I altered the thought experiment a little bit more. I thought, okay, so let's say there's the collision, uh, but now in the case of the collision, uh, we find out that the driver of the medical service van had been drinking. Uh, and so he's at fault for the accident. Uh, let's take out the, the equation that the other car's on fire, the baby dies. We're not going to do that. You know, we're, that's fine. But uh, let's say, may, let's just change a little bit. The driver's on his own and he has his own accident because he's been drinking and all 30 uh, fertilized eggs are lost. And I thought, 
do I see that equal to, let's say it's the driver of a school bus and he's been drinking and the bus is in an accident and 30 students lose their lives in the accident versus 30 fertilized eggs lose their lives in the accident. Do I see the magnitude of one of those differently? Do I see the legal repercussions of one of those differently? In other words, should I look and I say the guy that lost the 30 eggs should be up on 30 counts of manslaughter, just as much as if it was 30 counts of manslaughter for for the school bus? Or or is there something in me that is subdividing that out? And and if it is subdividing out, I may be wrong. Like, you know, like why am I putting more weight here than there potentially? But this was that conundrum I found myself in a little bit when it comes to when we make really strong statements like life begins at conception and all life is equal. In the thought experiments, I was troubled by how I was saying, well, the, the further down the road you get in age, the, the higher the value system ratio, right? So I, I just found myself going, you know, 30 fertilized eggs versus 30 high school students is different or 30 fertilized eggs versus 30 elementary school students is different or 30 fertilized eggs versus one baby in the back seat seems different. And again, I don't have conclusion on that. I'm not sharing this with you because I have some great conclusion. I think there's some out there that goes, no, it's all equal. We should prosecute the 30 eggs as much as 30 students. Uh, You should go after the 30 eggs and let the infant in the back die because 30 is bigger than one. And there may be some of those people out there, right? I just wasn't one of them. Like I was just really battling this through and wrestling this through a little bit and trying to understand like, okay, how am I seeing all of this and, 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 if I don't see all of that as equal, why don't I see that as equal? And again, be clear, I don't have a conclusion on that. I, part of the challenge of thought experiments is that they just cause you to think more and process more, right? But I was trying to kind of work this out like, why is this seeming like this with me? I'll tell you why I'm running this thought experiment a little bit is because this is – I, I think actually that is the thought experiment that a pro-choice person runs and they land on the other every time. You, you save the baby. You don't save the eggs. You save – you, you, you want to prosecute for 30 kids on a school bus differently than you prosecute for 30 eggs in a medical service van. But they're looking saying you should have a different answer. And if you don't have a different answer, why don't you have a different answer? And, and, and I understand that element, right? This is, again, just in my own humanness trying to work out a position that I hold – and, and work through the, the honest questions that somebody on the other side of this may have. And maybe this is where it begins to kind of move into the everyday missionary element of this a little bit. Um, as I think through the odds of the court overturning Roe versus Wade, I actually think the odds are low, personally. Um, but then again, I also thought that we weren't going to get rid of Russell Wilson as a Seahawk. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if my odd calling is very good there, right? So I, I actually in my most cynical space go, this has been a really great um, galvanizing tool for Democrats. And so it may be getting thrown around, bounced around, leaked out from the court, not because the court is seriously going to tackle it, but somebody in the court that maybe wants to kind of run up the flag, something that could really rally the base. This was the thing that was the leak. And now the motivation is, Hey, we know that Joe Biden's got a pretty crippled presidency, but this will rally Democrats to come out and vote at the midterms. Like I'm, there's enough of me in there that, that has a cynicism that goes, that's maybe part of what's in play in this. I don't really know. I think again, the odds of the court overturning it are, are lower than they are high, but in the overturning, 
if it was to happen, I think where the challenge will be is the, I think some people are under the assumption that abortion goes away in the United States legally because Roe versus Wade is overturned when that's not at all what happens. What happens is it just kicks it back to the states and then the states decide and half the states are going to protect abortion and half the states are going to create some kind of regulation either completely outlawing it or incredibly strict standards. <clears throat> and so you will literally have a divided country like 25-25 or 24-26, right? Like that's kind of where the numbers are falling out right now. So we're going to be more divided. And then in that, what's going to be hard, I think, is in the division, it's tough. You're going to have some states <clears throat> that say life begins uh, from a legal perspective. Like Texas is saying life begins at six weeks. It's technically, if, if you think about what this law is doing, they're, they're saying in my, in my thought experiment, they'd be like four weeks, uh, the, the medical truck overturns and the eggs are all destroyed. That's not a that's not a crime in Texas. Or if the guy in the truck decided to just destroy the thirty eggs because he was having a bad day, <coughs> the thirty fertilized eggs, Texas would be like, "Well, you did it four weeks. That's 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 not can be something that you can you know have somebody take you to court and sue you for ten thousand dollars for, right?" So, uh, but if it was six weeks in a day, then that's different, right? So Texas says life begins at six weeks according to their legal structure. Other places are going to say 12 weeks. Other things are going to say 16 weeks. Some are going to say, uh, you know, other things. And, and some states are going to be life doesn't begin until you breathe, right? Because you have the pretty radical, like, you know, partial, partial birth abortion stuff, which is crazy. And almost no Americans think this is a good idea. This is the problem with the extremism of both sides, right? Like one is like one second in, it's a life. And the other is like, not till it breathes, is it a life? And you're just like, wow, that... that Really, I, I feel like they're just going the other end of the spectrum because pro-life starts so early. They want to push it really late just to be pushing the envelope the other way to hope that it drags it somewhere to the middle between those two extremes. I think that's how this thing works sometimes. But um, you're going to have a divided country. And so some states are going to say human beings start here and other states are going to say human beings start there. And it's going to be really problematic. And then you're going to have some people crossing from a state into another state and that state says that they're carrying a life. The next state says they're not. They terminate that life in that state, come back to their first state. Can their first state prosecute them for a crime just because a crime was committed over state lines, right? Like there's going to be all this murkiness. And more to the point, there's going to be deeper passion, deeper division, deeper frustration. Uh, you're going to have a more divided states in in light of this reality. Now, I'm not saying that that isn't worth it or, you know, that that's just part of the cost of human rights or whatever that, because again, you know, I, I go back to the original Civil War. That was an issue of human rights. And the South did not believe blacks had equal rights to whites and a war was fought over that, right? And I can appreciate when, when the human rights thing is front and center, we have to really process out what the scope of these human rights are, right? And, and, and from that, this important question of when does human life authentically begin and, and trying to then figure out why do I land up, why I think life begins at that point. Because if I'm willing to see a nation divided, if I'm willing to, to accuse people of a crime of taking a life, I better be really, really certain that what I am positive about is that that is a life that they're taking in that moment. I, I, I need to know why I think that exactly. So if I think it's at conception, why exactly do I think it's at conception? Or if I think it's at six weeks, why do I think it's at six weeks? Or if it's at 12 weeks, why do I think it's at 12 weeks? I think this is where everybody has to process through their why, right? 
Now, for some, I think it's just safe to say, well, it's conception because it's conception. That's just, let's just start it there, right? That's when the the organic biological process gets underway. You get into cell replication. So I'm going to say it's at the moment of the, the cell divides, right? Like that's the moment. Or at the moment, the sperm penetrates the outer shell of the egg and there's that pop on of the light, right? Like that's the moment. Like that, you're going to land there, you know? Um and from that, that should be just as protected as the six-month-old in the back seat. It should be just as protected as the 30 kids on the school bus. Like, that's going to be your position. But if you find yourself kind of nuanced, you got to figure out, like, why the nuance, right? And then in that, too, to try to forge as much consistency as possible as you're working that through, you know? Um, I took an ethics class when I was doing the second-degree set that I'm in right now. And it was really interesting when when we we entered into both issues of of um, the pro-life, pro-choice discussion and on the end-of-life euthanasia discussion, right? And and it became, this is just, again, so for those who are a little bit more like, hey, I just want to kind of process this out a little bit. Maybe some of you are already like, I don't need to process this. I'm, I'm concluded. I don't need to even reinvestigate. But, but for me, uh, in the ethics class, what was interesting is it highlighted a number of things. So on the, on the side of... Um, contraception and uh, abortion and life and everything else, you know, it highlighted that, and I'm not sharing my opinion on this. I'm just saying it highlighted the consistency of challenge, which is why the Catholics make it really clean. They're just against all contraception, makes it really, really simple. Uh, they're so pro-life, they're against contraception. Uh, because there is a good portion of contraception methodology that while its primary function is to prevent the egg from releasing and descending and therefore eliminating the potential for an actual fertilization of the egg, there is in a number of those methods, the, some of the different pills and, and, and more chemical approaches that are used, a, like a backstop. And the backstop is that it creates a, a harsh environment or a less hospitable environment for the egg to attach and therefore to continue its process, right? So you may have a fertilized egg, but it can't find a location to attach because it's creating a hostile environment in the lining. So the egg eventually just disposes and it's a fertilized egg, but it just disposes out of the female, right? Uh, Well, this ethics class was highlighting the fact that those are abortive measures still. So if you're taking any birth control that has any potential to even allow for a, a mildly to severely hostile environment that changes the body chemistry to attach the egg, that that is an abortive measure. That was kind of what this ethics class was was promoting. So it was saying many contraception methodologies are not permissible in a pro-life posture. Therefore, uh, about your only options are very, very low dosage, low level birth control pills and, 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 and then condoms would be like kind of it or family planning method, whatever else. Right. So you're kind of doing it that way. So that was kind of on that front end. Cause it was being a Southern Baptist institution, uh, you know, it's going to fall pretty dramatically on that side. And so that's kind of what it was. And so not just whether a woman would go to choose to have an abortion, but even if a woman is taking certain types of birth controls that don't create a, a a healthy, livable environment for the egg to attach. Like that would be considered abortive as well. And in my thought experiment, again, I go back to, so are those women guilty of the crime of taking a life because they're choosing to take certain birth control measures that create hostile environments? It's kind of a tough thing to process through if we're just open and honest with ourselves, right? So kind of working through that, right? So had that side, but then we got to the end of life stuff. And 
as much as we're trying to fight, figure out when life begins, we have to figure out when life ends, right? So uh, is it ethical for somebody that is in a vegetative state for the medical community to remove them from life support? Because if they have a beating heart, they're still alive, right? Is, is that what we use or do we use brain waves? Do we use some kind of cognitive measurement to decide when life ends? And from that, should we use the same type of measurement for when life begins? And so if we're talking about when life begins, is it when a cell divides? Is it when a heart is beating? Is it when a brain is functioning? At the end of life, we use the brain is no longer functioning. The heart may be beating, but the brain is no longer functioning. This is the border that we use on the back end for traumatic events like that, right? And so maybe some could say, okay, it's when brain starts and when brain ends, those are the bookends. Others are going to say it's when heart stops and what heart or what heart beats and when heart stops, that's the bookends. And others are going to say, uh, you know, it's it's when these two units combine and then on the bookend of the back end, I'm not sure what the bookend of the back end would be of that, right? Like, but I think everybody has to work through all of that and understand what they're trying to say in light of all of this, right? Like, why do they land in the spaces that they do? And how would they answer the questions that people on the other side of this would have? And then in this, how do we have these dialogues in such a way where we can have conviction and compassion and care in the midst of that. And even in the midst of it, to admit that there's a certain level of mystery maybe that I don't fully understand, or even as I come as somebody from the pro-life perspective, I come also acknowledging that I think my position breaks down in my thought experiment a little bit. Like I'm not that consistent in my thought experiment. And I would love to just then say, nope, I'm going to change my thought experiment and I'm always going after the eggs over the baby and I'm prosecuting everybody the same way. But there's just something where I go, that I don't know why that seems odd to me that like, like, but it does. It seems like I, if I left the baby and grabbed the eggs, I would be more negligent than if I grabbed the eggs and left the baby. You know, it's like, like maybe you're not in that space, but I'm in that space, right? And, and, and so, again, just trying to work through how emotional this whole thing is, how dogmatic on both sides this whole thing is, how uh, divisive this whole thing is. And trying to figure out how can I best represent Jesus in the midst of all of that? And how can I do it with, with openness, honesty, and integrity and understand where I'm coming from, why I'm coming from that, and being able to sometimes say, I don't fully know where I land on that. And I don't fully know why I don't know why I land on that. But these are the tensions that I feel. You know what I mean? And these are the tensions that I work through. Um, because if I go to the Bible and go, I'm going to let it be the ultimate arbitrator of my position it is kind of tough sometimes, all right? And again, just speaking in, in openness for just a minute, I love the Bible. I love Jesus. I teach the Bible every Sunday. I'm a big fan, right, in all these ways, right? But if I go and I, I say, I'm going to find all of the verses that support my position, it can be hard because there are some murky things within the context of the Bible I don't fully know what to do with, you know? Um, there are certainly like the same David that sang about how God knit him in his mother's womb is the same David that sings about dashing the babies of his enemies on the rocks, right? Like I'm like, like apparently David didn't celebrate the his enemies' babies being knit in wombs in the same way he celebrated his own being knit in a womb because he had no problem celebrating killing other people's babies if they were his enemy. 
Like that's in the Bible. I didn't write it. I try not to reference it very much because it's troubling, but I go, there's troubling things in there as I'm trying to work this stuff out, right? Um, There's stuff in Numbers chapter five that is really hard to work out in light of some of this discussion. There's things in Exodus 21, they're a little tough to work out in light of some of this conversation. Um, I won't highlight those in this podcast. You can go look at those and work through those on your own, but it's just going to say that if we go like, you know, like the Bible is going to solve all of my problems on my positions on this. The Bible could be murky on some of these things. Or even, like I said, you, just that example of David. It's like, what do I do with a guy that sings about killing babies and then talks about being knit in the womb? How do I say that that's a pro-life guy, right? Like it's, he, David was clearly not a pro-life guy or the the invasion into Canaan from the Israelites coming out of Egypt and into the land where God's like, kill the women, kill the children, kill all the animals. You know, like there's some stuff there where I go like, Okay, I'm, I'm I'm pro-life. I believe pro-life. I think that's ultimately the message of Jesus in so many ways is that he's here to bring flourishing, which is why then my position is all about helping raise the kids and make that possible. And we have to look at all those pieces. But when I'm trying to let the Bible just be the, the, the thing that I can just go, oh, there's my verse. I'm done with this. It can be hard. I, I just want to be open about that. I, I I hope that doesn't bother you too much, right? I just go, I want to be open about that. Like the, the, the truth of God's word is the truth of God's word, both in its beauty and also in its ugly. And we have to reason through those things together. And I think especially as you're talking with people that are more on the pro-choice side of things, these are the very things they raise, right? They'll bring up these very things, right? Like I was reading something just the other day about this section of Numbers chapter five, where it's this really weird passage, right? Where where God says, hey, if there's a husband that thinks his wife has cheated on him, uh, then he needs to take her to the priests. And what they're going to do is they're going to sit her down. They're going to put some, uh, you know, like uh, grain in her lap. They're going to let down her hair. And they're going to take some water from the altar and put the dust of the tabernacle in the water, mix it up. And then she's going to swear her allegiance, whether she's been faithful or unfaithful, uh, to her husband and then drink this water. And if she's been unfaithful to her husband and she drinks this water, she will bring a cursing on herself. It will cause her belly to distend. And then people get a little concerned about the Hebrew or they're not sure what to do with it because it looks like it says, and she'll miscarry from that or she'll either just become barren or her womb will wither. Like the Hebrew is really tough to figure out there. But if she's not guilty, then she'll be fine. She'll be able to have children and nothing will happen and her belly won't distend and everything else. Like it's in the book of Numbers chapter five. I didn't write it. Don't always get excited about the fact that it's there because I look at this and go, so is this God saying if you were an adulteress? that you would drink this elixir from the floor of the tabernacle and you would miscarry like intentionally. And if the child's not to blame for this, why would God have a miscarriage of a woman who is the adulterer? Like she did the wrong thing, but why would the child then be miscarried from her actions? How do you answer that? Now it may not be a miscarriage. It may just be that her inside shrivel. And like, again, the Hebrew is really weird, especially when it gets into idioms and euphemism and stuff like that. So people are kind of divided on what we do with Numbers chapter five, but it's one of those things where you go like, I got to wrestle with that. Like I got to wrestle with the text, you know what I mean? And, and figure out what this is trying to communicate at least as a principle or whatever else. And that's what I was reading. It was a person that was arguing from a Christian belief in pro-choice citing numbers five, right? And, and kind of looking at that. And I go, this is the stuff that we need to work through as Christians who want to be diligent in the scriptures and faithful to God and interacting with others and trying to build bridges as we ultimately try to bring the gospel, which brings transformation and flourishing to the world. And that's the core of all of it to me, right? Like, how do we do that? 
And I think what made me think about doing this topic today was um, this last week, uh, my man Tim Keller got in trouble online because uh, he always is kind of like they call it uh, Tim Keller's whimsy is a thing of the past. Like, whimsy isn't a good thing anymore. His third way is not a solution. We need to just dig in, pick our side, fight battles like battles and everything else. And and Keller was trying to make the point of, hey, we, we need to keep Christian unity in mind here even as we're dealing with difficult things. And we have to be willing to dialogue about these difficult things and work through our rationale on these difficult things and have good faith discussions on hard things no matter where we land. So even for me, I land in the pro-life side and then I share and hear some of my concerns as somebody on the pro-life side, right? Especially in, in my thought experiment. Now, again, we get further up the gestation scale things get clearer for me really quick, right? Like that's not problematic to me. It's in that those early stuff where I'm just kind of going like, why would I say, you know, we we leave the six-month-old in the back seat and rescue 30 fertilized eggs? Why do I feel like that I would be irresponsible? <laughs> and, and maybe I'm missing it. Maybe I just need to be more principled. And like, you know, it's all equal life, equal in every way, and the equation is clear. I just found myself struggling with that, but I admit I'm struggling. So what I'm hoping in this podcast today is that um, in the culture wars of all or none, having a sense of reflectiveness and a sense of openness, and and again, fighting for that consistency, like I said, where it's like, you know, this is why, again, I appreciate my Catholic friends so much that they they seem to have a little bit more of that spirit in some ways as far as on this topic. And I don't necessarily agree with them. I, and even in my ethics class, I'm not sure I fully agree with some of the stances it took on contraception measures, depending. I think it just kind of depends on a number of factors in there that are all in play. Um, and so I'm trying to always figure that out. What, what is it exactly um, I'm saying why I'm saying it? And if I'm going to take a position that says, I think this is the taking of a life, I want to make sure I'm not unjustly accusing somebody of taking a life because that is just as unjust as taking a life, right? So the, the, the weight of it's important. And then again, I bring it back to, and we're called to be missionaries. We're, we're called to be like Jesus in our world. I mean, Jesus spent time with people that, that were very differing positions than religion and had lives that had all kinds of complexity and complication in them. And he was a real safe sp- place to land for people. And I think we need to be that too, right? Because in this conversation, what is also true is that many women that we know have had abortions. Um, I think the current number is like one in every four women in the United States will have an abortion over the course of their life. In churches, many women have had abortions because by and large, it's religious people of religious backgrounds that end up having abortions um, for a number of reasons. So we always want grace and, and care in the midst of that discussion. And there will be people that don't disagree with us and we're, we're, or don't agree with us rather. And we're still called to really love people that don't agree with us on both sides. Maybe some of you are listening and you're like, Matt, I'm not in your pro-life camp. I'm in the pro-choice camp. I don't agree with you on, on a number of things that you're saying, but you still have to love me if you claim Christ as much as I have to love you in my position as well, right? So some of my position has some murkiness that I'm trying to work through. Some of my position has clarity that I'm comfortable with, you know, and 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 yet I want to be open in all of that. And I go as a Bible studier and reader, there's some passages where I go, that's strange because it doesn't back my position. And then there's other passages that beautifully back my position. And I realized the Bible is a messy book. And then I need to be more prayerful, more thoughtful, more caring, more invested into letting the Holy Spirit do a work in me, right? 
that's kind of the process. So uh, I had somebody recently say, hey, are you going to talk about the Roe versus Wade stuff on the podcast? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to say on that. I've talked about the topic before, but I wanted to approach this one a little bit differently. And I'm hoping that as you get to the end of this now, that, that I'm hoping it isn't reactive. I hope people don't go like, oh, see, Matt, this is the exact problem. You opened the door up just a little bit, and now you're just opening the floodgates. And that's, I I think that's the problem of a lot of our things right now in our world. It's like we feel like we have to double down on our side because we fear the other side is doubling down as well. And it just doesn't leave room for building of bridges, forging of relationships, understanding of one another, and, and in that, giving us the space to really reveal the compassion and love of Jesus. I mean, I think about that self-descriptor of his, I'm lowly and gentle in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Like that's the space that we're meant to inhabit. That's why I like Keller's third way. That's why I'm sad that people are just now beating up on Keller, even though he says, listen, I'm pro-life. That's not my point. My point is we have to figure out how to inhabit this world effectively as missionaries. And it's like, well, then you're a sellout. So it's not enough to just simply say you're pro-life. You have to be a certain kind of, and you can give no room for any kind of mystery, veritable uh, discussion or whatever else. And I think that's just going to divide us more. And I think in that, that will only hurt the missional movement of Christianity and our society more because I believe life is better with Jesus. I believe we need to model that life is better with Jesus. And while I believe in human dignity, human values, human values, and human rights, and these are all things that we need to want to, to contend for, we want to contend in grace because we're contending for both the mothers and the children. We're contending for women that are in difficult spaces, abusive environments, impoverished environments. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that if we don't care about that too— we're negligent. We're not owning uh, the scope of the problem. And so hopefully this is understood and and taken in the best spirit possible. Uh, I know it's a little longer than most. I know it's not resolving in a lot of ways. I totally understand that. Um, I, I, I just, I think in some parts of this, it seems really clear to me. In other parts of this, I think humility is so important in, in these discussions, in these issues that are before us, and a level of empathy, a level of understanding, which I think I already see in some of the cases and some of the issues, right? Like even the Texas law, you can't go after the woman, right? Which is interesting. She's the one that would seek the abortion, but you can't go after the woman for seeking the abortion. Anybody that helps her, you can go after them, but you can't go after her. Even the state of Texas is acknowledging we don't want to accuse her of taking a life pro-life, but we don't want to accuse her of taking, I mean, you see, we already have some doublespeak and what it is that we're all about here. And I think my thought experiment captures the nuances of our weird doublespeak in some of this, right? We just, we're kind of saying, yeah, it's a graduating scale somehow. And I don't know what to do with all of that. And what do I do with it, a graduating scale? And maybe I need a little bit more humility if I'm, if I do see some level of graduation in the scale, right? That somehow three weeks versus three months versus nine months, this seems to be magnitudes of difference there. And, and what do I do with all of that? I don't, I don't know what to do with all of that. Again, I know where I land out of a certain cautionary tale, um, but I'm pondering and I want to be thoughtful and I want to be, um, 
committed to God's heart and ideals in the midst of that and committed to what justice looks like for all involved and making sure that I don't just get a myopic view of justice one way or another, but really keeping that always before me, always in check. Because that's part of what it means to be a missionary. We have to care about issues of justice because that is a major theme throughout the Old Testament. The lack of justice brought the destruction of Israel. The lack of justice in the church, I believe, brings the destruction of the church. But that is seen in varieties of ways. And we want to have a heart for that. And I believe the more we're caring about all those things and we're wanting to be engrafted in and ingrained into our culture to bring flourishing in the midst of decaying things, the more effective we will be everyday missionaries.